This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. So today is the release date of my latest project. It's a book called Proteinaholic with lead author Garth Davis, MD. And so I wanted to talk about it on today's podcast. And a lot of my podcasts are pre-recorded days, weeks in advance, but this one is going out in just a couple hours. And I wanted to get Garth to talk about it, but he is doing the media blitz. He's on big channels. Uh, I got a list from the uh, publisher of all the things he's doing today. And I didn't want to just talk about it myself. So I asked my wife, Mia, to come into the studio today and we were going to have a conversation because as much fun as conversations are for me in interviews, that's as much not fun, just me speaking into a microphone, pretending to talk to someone. So Mia, thank you for joining me. You are so welcome. So I thought we'd just have a conversation and um, you haven't read the book yet, right? Um, I've glimpsed at it over your shoulder. It's a nice cover, right? It's a very nice cover. So what, what, do you, uh, what do you think would be a good question to get us started or a good, a good conversation starter? Well, I mean, the fact that we were at Weaver Street yesterday and people were offering um, turkey jerky and the woman said, you have to have your protein um, snacks. And this great, this snack has lots of protein. You know, people are obsessed with protein. What, what do you do for your protein? Where do you get your protein? Oh my gosh, you know, aren't you uh, starving? You know, you look so healthy, but clearly you should have an answer. What, how do you respond to that? Yeah. Well, you know that I used to respond in ways that were tremendously antisocial and unhelpful, right? I used to give people lectures. I used to be derisive. And funnily enough, one of the, the things that's happened as I've been working on this book is that like, I kind of got it all out of my system. So I feel very not charged about the protein issue in public. So I recommend everybody who's, you know, who's got some pet issue that you're really freaking out about and has kind of, you know, got you by the short and curly. He's like, write, write a big book about it and then you'll calm down. So that's, that's a, a kind of a, a blithe answer to the question. But, you know, as one of the things that I noticed when I started working on the book, and I have to say that, you know, I came into the project fairly late in its, uh, in its history. Garth uh, has been working on this for years, doing all the research, uh, nights, weekends, late, you know, e evenings. Um, and so when I jumped in, there was a large body of, of work to assimilate all at once. And one of the things that really struck me was how uh, pervasive this is in society, this, this concept of protein. You know, it was always there, but I hadn't really thought about it much. You know, aside from the question that people would ask, where do you get your protein? Um, but I hadn't thought about... The, the bigger picture. So then I'm walking through stores, I'm walking through Trader Joe's, and I see and I can count the number of products that have protein in big letters on the packaging, from meat to vegetables to pancake mix to, to dairy products. That, that that's like the way you sell something these days is you scream how much protein it has. And you know, just like with, with advertising. So, you know, we're we're not into like buying makeup or fast cars or fancy clothes or stuff like that. But, but you could argue we're still being influenced by advertising by all these people who are, you know, beautiful and rich and happy 
and that somehow we're missing out, you know, that we need we need to have their products, we need to have stuff in order to be happy. And I think that message kind of filters into us, even if we're even if we don't feel ourselves to be materialistic. And, you know, I think we have to do a lot of excavating of our brains to, to reject that part of our consumer culture. And I think the same thing has happened to us around protein, where with with all the the hype, that protein is the good thing and everything else is bad. Carbs, right? We speak, when people use the word carbs, they never use it in terms of, I'm trying to get more carbs. <laughs> They're like, I'm getting too many carbs. I have to cut down on carbs. When people talk about fat, you know, there's paleo people who are really into like 15 strips of bacon for breakfast. But most of us, when <laughs> I wish I had a camera on your face right now, <laughs> but most of us, when we look at, when we think about fat, we say, well, we want to reduce fat. But Protein is the third macronutrient, and that get, by that getting a pass, it's like carbs and fat are fighting it out, and then they're like, you know, ble- bleeding and bruised in the ring, and then protein steps up and raises both its arms, and the referee goes, ding, 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 we have a winner. And so, so this idea that protein is the thing that we should be getting more of, and we should be measuring our food quality in terms of how much protein it has, has gone almost unchallenged in popular culture until today, until this, this book has come out. And, you know, and obviously people have been talking about it for a while. T. Colin Campbell, um, my lead author on Whole and the Low Carb Fraud, has been talking about this. Um, but this is really the, the, the first book to kind of take a very sort of populist swipe at the idea of we need tremendous amounts of protein in order to be healthy. And if we don't get our protein, then something unspecified and bad is going to happen to us. Did, did that answer your question? <laughs> or, or did I did I totally skirt it again? Because you, you asked me, what do I say to people? Well, now I say to people, you know, read the damn book. Uh, but, you know, what, what are what are your thoughts? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I usually just go to the usual, well, think about you know, rhinos and elephants, they don't eat meat and they are the strongest and the largest animals on the planet. So that's not. Yeah, it's a it's a good answer. Um, what I've discovered, though, is, that, you know, there's this concept of framing, which was sort of like communications theory, but it was it was popularized a couple of election cycles ago by a, uh, a guy, a professor of linguistics called George Lakoff. And he says the way the way you frame the question is much more important than the answer. So to use a, uh, an old trite example, you know, have you stopped beating your wife? The answer doesn't matter because the question already frames it in terms of an assumption. So Lakoff used this around politics to say, like, um, you know, when, when um, George W. Bush was rallying American support for an invasion of Iraq following 9-11, he kept using the phrase, America doesn't need a permission slip to defend itself. And Lakoff says the word permission slip there is brilliant because everybody thinks about the permission slip that they had to get from the teacher in elementary school when they had to pee and the teacher was withholding it. And so anyone who's, you know, got that emotional uh, history is going to respond powerfully to the, the, the idea of permission slip. And he talks about it in terms of who frames the debate about what, let's say, pro-choice or pro-life. You know, the, the way you talk about the issue really, really frames it. And so so by answering the question, where do you get your protein? We're already falling into the framing. 
of, well, now I have to um, defend my dietary choices to explain where I'm getting this protein. And so one of the things I've started doing is turning it on its head and saying, where do you get your fiber? Where do you get your phytonutrients? So because when you look at the, the standard American diet, uh, it is so fiber deficient, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, I think one, one of the best businesses to be in these days is making um, magazine holders for toilets, you know, because Americans need, you know, <laughs> a lot of diversion on there because it takes so long to go to the bathroom because we're so fiber deficient. Um, I, <laughs> she's shaking her head again, folks. Um, I, I just um, did a, a, a TV spot for Conscious Living TV um, up, up in, in D.C. And one of the things I did to prepare for that was to um, create a, a daily menu. And I created a daily menu of a, a very paleo diet, which was, you know, um, milk, whole milk and, and bacon and eggs and salmon and uh, hamburger without the bun. And then I created a kind of a, a junk food meal. I think it started with like hot pot, you know, uh, applewood, bacon, cheese, egg, hot pockets for breakfast and um, like a, a pizza for lunch and um, a hungry man, 800 calorie dinner for uh, for for dinner. And I looked at like protein and calories and fiber for and uh, phytonutrients or antioxidants for all of these. And and I also compared it to a like a typical way that I, day that I would eat, sort of a whole food plant based day. And the numbers were pretty remarkable in terms of though. So there was zero fiber in the paleo meal. There was about seven grams of fiber in the standard American meal or maybe a 13 or 14. I can't remember the exact number, but it was, you know, it was, it was fairly low. It was a lot less than the 30 or 40 grams we're, we're supposed to get. Mine had 70 grams. And um, and I actually had white pasta in that di dish. I had like white macaroni with broccoli for dinner. So if I'd had brown rice or quinoa or some other whole grain or even a potato or a sweet potato, it would have been much higher. It would have been closer to 80 or 90. And, you know, if, if you can hit, get like 100 grams of fiber in your diet, you're never going to get colorectal cancer. Uh, you're never going to get polyps. You're, you're just not going to be subject to a lot of the Western um, digestive diseases. And so, so I want to turn the question on its head and to ask people, you know, protein. OK, well, you know, that's a good question. Let me ask you, where do you get your fiber? All right. Thanks for that. <laughs> sure. And then, now I can get into a whole new range, range of, of fights with people <laughs> over, <laughs> over a totally different issue. But I, I am mellowing. You know, once once I stopped eating so much protein, I became a much kinder person. So having spent some time with the Bushmen in um, South Africa and in Botswana, um, they do eat a lot of meat, but they eat it all in one sitting. And then they they do tend to do a lot of gathering. And since we're coming from a hunter-gatherer society, archaeologically speaking. Anth yes, that's right. Um, and people who are in this belief that you have to eat a lot of meat how do you defend that where you know isn't that part of our shouldn't we mm. sit should be should we be eating meat right well that's the basis of the paleo argument 
that uh, if you strip away all the frou-frou of, of our civilization and you, you look at what we should be doing naturally, we're hunter-gatherers. Men go out and, and kill things and women gather things from the ground. And that's how we should eat and live and be healthy. So we, we get into this paleo argument a little bit in Proteinaholic. Um, you know, I mean, it's just a, f a few basic points. Um, so persistence, people who studied persistence hunters, which is the, the, the son called Bushmen, you know, which basically means you go and you outrun animals. Um, and it takes a few days. It, takes, it takes, could take several days. And they said these, and these are like the best hunters in the world. Without a high-powered high gun. Right, without a gun. In fact, they're using these, these, these whittly little, little darts that don't even kill the animal. It just sort of slowly poisons and paralyzes it. So you, even after you hit it, you've got to keep chasing it for quite a while. And it turns out that their, their success ratio is really quite low. It's like 1 in 20. So, you know, for, for uh, hunter-gatherers to go out hunting is a little bit like, like me playing a fantasy football league. It's like, you know, I could, I could win every once in a while. I'm not particularly good at it, but I do it for the sport as opposed to because I really think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win something. Um, there's an excellent book called Powered by Plants by Don Matez, who's been a guest on this podcast. And he, he's done a lot of caloric intake studies, intake and output, and shows that uh, persistence hunting is actually a calorie negative activity, that you burn more calories in the hunt than you do in, um, in the ingesting of, of whatever animal you, you might happen to kill. So and he suggests that this is really a form of sexual selection, where rather than natural selection, whereas the hunters um, who are really good at hunting tend to be more attractive mates because it's an extra little insurance policy, as opposed to the guy who just sort of lies around and lets the woman dig out all the, the roots and tubers and, and finds the, the edible bark and berries. Right. So it's, it's, you know, hunting is kind of like a way for men to be useful in a society in which it was damn hard for them to be useful in lots of other ways. Um, there, no serious anthropologist thinks that we got the majority of our calories from animals. Um, you know, yes, we, we, we evolved the ability to tolerate animal flesh in uh, and the quantity is less important than the um, the timing, than the, the the frequency. So we could, you know, yeah, if you go on a, a persistence hunt and you kill something big and everybody gorges themselves on meat, so that's going to be a um, you know a, a huge uh, animal protein, animal fat hit to the system, but. It's forgivable. We're gonna we're gonna get into this huge uh, amount of inflammation. We're gonna get clogged arteries for a little while, but then it, the body is really good at healing itself. So it's like any sort of stressor or trauma. You know, you could uh, you could fall down the stairs and you could you know be very bruised, but you, you the body heals. You could get a an infection and the body heals. So think about eating meat as uh, both. You know, it's a cultural activity. But it's, it's also a bit of harm to the body. But if you do it every once in a while, the body can heal itself. The problem is, so imagine that you're injuring yourself now three times a day. And every time the body starts to heal itself, you smack it again. So, um, you know, I think uh, uh, John McDougall, the 
plant-based doctor out of California uses the analogy of imagine that you kept, you know, like smashing your ankle into a piece of furniture and you kept doing it three times a day. And every time it started to get better, you'd smack it again. It would start to bleed. It would lacerate. You'd bruise the bone again. You'd um, bruise the tendons. It would never heal. And that's what we're doing with our diets when we're having persistence hunting output three times a day without ever actually doing the persistence hunting input. So, you know, to use that, that as an argument that this is the way we should be eating now, first of all, there's very little evidence um, to support the fact that we had anything but a tiny percentage of our calories from animal foods ever in our history, except in times of great economic inequality, right? We get lots of meat when we have rich and poor. I was just listening to... Um, Pam Popper uh, reviewing a book about cancer called The Emperor of All Maladies. And it says the author talks about um, pe people doing um, autopsies of the, the wealthy Egyptians uh, who had been mummified and finding all sorts of diseases of affluence in them. The same things that we have, you know, in our society today. And it's, it's, it's based on partly our, uh, our blip of fossil fuels, right? So all of a sudden, Calories are cheap because we're denuding the earth of all these calories that had been stored up for millions and millions of years, and we're using it as fertilizer, we're using it as transportation. So all of a sudden, we're in this weird blip of a food glut, and we think this is normal. And also, we can, you know, throughout history, high calorie, high fat, high protein diets have been the purview of the very rich, right? So, gout. Is a, is a disease of excess protein, excess calories, and it was called the disease of kings. So those are the only two times in history where you have this kind of uh, repeated load on the body of animal protein and animal fat and other animal tissue is in great inequality, where the rich are stealing from the poor, essentially, and in this, this little blip of, um, of fossil fuels where we're essentially stealing the Earth's insides from from future generations and neither neither one makes it natural so i looked at one of the reviews and somebody brought up the fact that when you eat meat uh you're just talking about meat across the board as opposed to you know game versus uh, factory farming is meat across the board bad for you or is there some good meat in parentheses well there's worse meat <laughs> Um, so yeah, so a lot of people will say, yes, well, all right, I'll, I agree that factory farmed meat is bad, but eating, you know, the grass-fed beef and locally sourced pork and organic chicken and uh, wild-caught salmon, those are fine, and that's different. And, you know, there, there's lots of farmers in the, in the um, you know, the, the permaculture movement who, who grow their own chickens, and they'll talk about how healthy their eggs are. And it's true, they have a different nutritional profile that animals that are, that are living more or less natural lives do have a different nutritional profile, and they have smaller amounts of pesticides um, in them, and they're, they're, they're probably less harmful. And in terms of, of a society, in terms of sort of global change, if we could just eliminate factory farming and just have people getting their animals from these local farms, I think that would be such a huge improvement in our diets and in the health of the country and in the health of the environment that you won't find me arguing against that. 
But if, if someone's asking individually for themselves, okay, I'm eating wild-caught salmon and I'm having f fresh eggs from the farm down the road and I'm eating grass-fed beef that's grown on organic fields, am I okay? The answer is unequivocally no. And, and we know this for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, meat, meat is meat. And the, the, the basic amino acids that make up the proteins haven't changed. Uh, we know that when meat is cooked at high temperatures, especially if it's, if it's broiled or seared over an open flame or cooked over in, in grease on very high heat, it, it produces uh, cancer-causing agents, uh, HCAs, heterocyclic amines. Um, we have epidemiologic evidence of different uh, places around the world where they were eating either a lot of meat or not very much meat well before inorganic farming was invented. So there's um, high rates of cancer among gauchos in Argentina from the 19th century, and they were eating what the paleo people would, con be con would consider, you know, the, the, the prime of meat. They were eating, f um, you know, wild grass-fed cattle that were being driven over the ranges, and still they were having much higher rates of disease than their neighbors who were, who were subsisting on more of a plant-based diet. So, yeah, it's better. It's probably better for the animal to have, you know, as, as some of the farmers say, one terrible day than an entire terrible life of suffering. It's true that there's a lot of problems with factory farming that we could go into around, you know, hormones, antibiotics, growth agents. But even, do you remember when we were, we were in Africa and we ate a chicken at the, at the, um, the shaman's farm? Do you remember how stringy that chicken was? It was like a, like a, a regular, like a bird. And, it was, and the ones that, you know, it's, it's siblings that were still walking around were kind of scrawny and the meat was extremely tough and it was not at all pleasant. It wasn't like a, an American chicken. And no matter how much you stewed that thing, it was going to stay tough. That's what chickens used to be like. Now chickens that we get, if, whether they're factory farmed or even free range, the, 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 you know, no one in America would eat that chicken. No farmer would say, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to grow an ethical chicken. I'm going to grow a chicken that can actually, you know, walk and run and fly. We got these chickens that can barely walk. They can't escape from predators, so we have to keep them literally cooped up. They uh, are bred for obesity, right? The average chicken now has many, many times the amount of fat and calories as a chicken 100 years ago. It's a completely different species. And we talked about the chicken farmer up the road who who has these meat chickens at night. They don't even go and into their coop for safety. The layers go into their in their coop, but the, the, the meat chickens have no brains. Their brains are bred out. Yeah, you know, you think about like, you know, stories of, of societies that have a cannibalistic ethos and, and, and there's a common belief that you like you in, ingest the qualities of the person you eat. So it was, you know, you'd eat your foe, you'd eat, you, <laughs> well, this face is the worst one yet. <laughs> no, but just, uh, just as a concept, you know, the, these societies, like if, 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 you just, if you slay your enemy and they're a brave warrior, you'd want to eat them to take in some of their courage. In, anim in societies where they hunt, they worship the animals that they hunt. They want those qualities inside them. So if there's any sort of spiritual truth to that, what are we ingesting? We are ingesting terror. We're ingesting inbred stupidity. We're ingesting obesity. We're ingesting docility. You know what? <laughs> the metaphor kind of works. Mm. We, we become what we eat. 
So, yeah, I mean, certainly factory farming is one of the worst things ever. Um, and, you, you, you know, we know how bad it is precisely because of all the states that have under pressure from agricultural groups passed what we're going to call ag-gag laws, where agricultural gag laws apply, where you're not allowed to film, you're not allowed to talk about it. You know, Oprah famously got sued um, by the Cattlemen Board for saying, after having uh, Howard Lyman on her show talking about mad cow disease, saying that she wasn't going to eat a burger anymore. You know, this is Oprah, one of the richest women, one of the richest people in the world, had to hire a team of lawyers, pay them huge amounts of money just to survive this lawsuit. You know, she won it, but the the upshot was everyone else goes, okay, I'm not Oprah, I'm not opening my mouth. So so we know, you know, any inst- industry that is so opposed to transparency is doing terrible things. Um, so one one interesting way to look at this is, you know, so there are there are uh, different levels of exposure to things. And if you want to know if something's really bad for you, you want to kind of look at high levels of exposure. Who are the people who are really uh, get, getting a lot of it? So, for example, the question is like pesticides in our food. Are they bad or not? Well, it's very inconclusive in terms of studies. There's no there's no one who's going to go out on a limb as a scientist and say we have clear proof that pesticides and herbicides are particularly harmful. But when you look at farm workers who are getting concentrations of this stuff 100 or 200 times what we're getting and, you know, a little bit that uh, that doesn't get washed off the apple or the orange, you know, they have incredibly high rates of disease. They have uh, high rates of uh, women have high rates of miscarriage, lots of cancers, lots of lung diseases. So we can say we know that these things are bad for us in high quantities. The question is just where is the slope? So I'm one of these people who doesn't like slopes. I don't like to say, well, we're, we're going to set an acceptable limit for, you know, diazinon. We're going to set an acceptable limit for Agent Orange. We're going to set an acceptable limit for the neocotinoids that are um, apparently killing bees. Because you know what you can do? You can set an acceptable limit for everything. <laughs> and there's an infinite number of things that you can have an acceptable limit for. So we're ending up with a very unaccept- unacceptable limits. I think the only acceptable limit of a carcinogen that, that is human caused is zero. And, you know, as a society, if we wanted to get there, we would. We absolutely would get there. So when we look at um, the effect, uh, you know, the, the um, chickens, let's say, what's the effect of eating chicken on us? Well, we know that chickens contain lots of viruses, we know that USDA um, oversight does very little to protect us from, uh, from um, you know, all sorts of bacteria, from Campylobacter, from E. coli, from Salmonella, right? We, you know, and so we're told, like, you know, clean, we'll cook, cook the chicken um, well, you know, and that'll kill everything. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't kill the, uh, the endotoxins that the bacteria give off. And you don't even have to eat the chicken to get sick from it, as shown by a study of workers in a chicken processing plant, chicken slaughter and processing plant. They weren't eating the chicken. They were just killing them and processing them. And the men in, uh, they were almost all men in this plant, had nine times the, the national rate of cancer of the penis. So they weren't even eating it. It was just sort of the, the, the feathers and fluff and dander and stuff in the air, the bacteria in the air 
from these birds. So, you know, and, and, and chicken's another interesting thing because everyone thinks of chicken as like the health food, right? A nice skinless roasted chicken. That's what people will feed their kids. That's what everyone is saying. Well, that's, you know, it's better than beef. Turns out chicken is the food most highly correlated with obesity of anything we've ever studied. That um, when you look at the graph of chicken eating, and chicken eating has gone up a lot in this country in the last 50, 60 years, that chickens and obesity are the thing that we can put the closest connection to when we, when we, when we graph them one on top of the other. And in the book, we talk about all the uh, biochemical reasons, all, all the... Um, you know, the, the smoking guns that we could look at to say, well, here's how chicken leads to obesity. So having said all that bad stuff about meat, can you tell me why I should be eating vegetables and fruits and grains? Well, it's, it's either that or little Debbie fudge cakes, right? <laughs> you got you to gotta eat something. So there's a, one, of the, one of the big debates that we look at in the book, and it's, it, it turns out to be completely moot because it, it, it doesn't really matter, is is... Is it that meat is bad or that when we take meat out of the diet, we're just replacing it with fruits and vegetables and other produce that's really good? And it depends on, on what you're talking about. So there, you know, even junk food vegans do better than meat eaters in, in most categories, in weight, in BMI, in, in cancer, in, in longevity. So there's a, there's a lot of ways in which even... Junk food is better than than meat uh, for for some people in some uh, in some situations. However, there are really really interesting correlations between produce and health, and so it's it's in, in a way the American public is a really good scientific test case for this. Because imagine you have a society that's eating all their fruits and vegetables. It's really hard to tease out. Like, why are they healthy? But if you have a society that's eating almost no fresh produce, and, and just, to, just to put it in context, um, Americans get an average of 5% of their calories from whole produce, um, meaning not animal products, not meat, dairy, eggs, and not highly processed foods. So actual produce. And of that 5%, half of that is potatoes in the form of French fries. Uh. So, so we're getting almost no vegetable matter into our diets. So, so that's a really interesting test case for scientists because then you can, you can get amazing results by doing almost anything. So when I was a kid, I remember my, I'd go to my grandparents' house and they'd make me eat, drink my prune juice because they'd heard that prune juice is like good for, for digestive health. It was going to help you be regular. And there's some evidence that, that certainly eating prunes helps people with constipation a great deal. But it, it has nothing compared to eating a diet of lots and lots of fruits and vegetables. But we can find that we're, we're so deficient that even adding a little bit. So we can do studies where we show that adding like a cup of blueberries a day cuts your cancer risk. Half a cup of walnuts, um, a little bit of kale. So we're, we're so deficient that anything comes out and, and stands out in scientific studies showing health improvements. Um, so when you when you eat a, a balanced diet of uh, lots and lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, legumes, whole grains, nuts, seeds, you're 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 getting the best of, of both worlds. So I certainly wouldn't recommend ditch the meat and start eating, 
you know, fake veggie burgers and uh, Oreos and Coke, because those are, you know, animal or plant-based products. Uh, but, when, you know, when you combine the benefits of abstaining or severely reducing the amount of animal products you have with the incredible benefits of plant foods, uh, you've got you've got a win win. Um, and just, you know, just to to to, have to throw one wrench into the, the works there, um, a really interesting set of studies was done with South African blacks um, over the last 30 years. And this is this was a group that was, we um, say, fi financially uh, disadvantaged. They were uh, city workers. They didn't have access to fresh food, and the they weren't they weren't well off enough, and the government wasn't well enough enough to give them meat. So what they would eat would be what we would consider a very very poor plant based diet. So almost entirely consisting on giant sacks of maize or you know cornmeal. Um, and processed white bread and, and tiny amounts of other fruits and vegetables. And their rate of colorectal cancer was something like 1 17th the rate of white South Africans. And it wasn't because they were having protective um, phytonutrients from greens. It wasn't that they were getting the range of antioxidants from grapes and bell peppers and tomatoes. It was just not having the meat load, the stress of the meat load, uh, meat load on their colons that was reducing their rates. So yeah, fruits and vegetables are great and they are what I would use to replace the meat, but just reducing or eliminating animal products appears to have a huge protective effect in some areas anyway. Now, are we including uh, milk and cheese in there too? Yeah, you know, if, if I were to tell people to, to eliminate one thing from their diet, it would be dairy. Just the, the, the data is so clear. Um, so the, you, you, know, you can certainly argue that human beings um, can eat some meat. Right. A lot of societies, they get their they get some protein from insects that uh, they just don't pick out of their their uh, produce. Um, most societies, you know, the blue zones, these these places around the world where people live to be 100 more frequently than anywhere else. And they 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 lead lives of, of vigor and engagement and health into their 80s, 90s and hundreds. They they're not vegan. They eat some amounts of meat like we talked about earlier. It's small. And it's few and far between, and their bodies get a chance to heal, but they they are eating some some amounts of meat. So you could say that we're you know we have evolved the capacity to handle meat, and it seems like a natural thing. Even you know gorillas and chimpanzees are fairly close um, genetic relatives. Will eat meat every so often. So it seems like a fairly natural thing to do, whether it's ethical, whether it's sustainable in the, you know, with, with so many people on Earth is, is all debatable. But it doesn't it doesn't seem to be entirely unnatural, given our, our history to eat some amounts of meat. Dairy, however, is a really different question. And, you know, you've, you've seen sort of... Uh, these memes on your Facebook wall by by uh, plant based advocates where they have like, you know, a guy in a suit like straddle uh, lying underneath a cow straddling it and like sucking on its udders, like just how weird that is. And you think about um, hum humanity is the only species that routinely drinks the milk of another species. And and I think even worse than that, routinely 
drinks milk after weaning age, right? We are, we are so adrift in the universe that we can't grow up. We can't, we can't be motherless. So, you know, I, I would say, and you, and you know from your, your shamanistic studies, that sort of, you know, the, the first chakra, the, the root chakra of the body is the connection to Mother Earth, is the connection to the Earth. And I think we've lost that in our civilization. And we have tremendous amounts of fear, and we are addicted to anything that reminds us of Mother Comfort, which is, which is milk. And um, cheese is just milk in extremely concentrated forms. And the evidence for the, the negative health effects of dairy are, are everywhere. They're huge. There's, you know, the, I was talking to, to uh, Garth the other day on uh, a, sh a short interview. When we were I was asking him about my plate, you know, the, the latest government um, food recommendation after, you know, the four food groups and my, and my pyramid. So now they have a plate. The plate's decent. The plate has four more or less equal quarters, fruits, vegetables, grains, and protein, which, which we'll get to. Uh, but up in the, up at the upper right-hand corner is a glass of milk. And there is absolutely zero scientific evidence to support drinking of milk for anyone at any time. The only reason to ever have milk is because you're going to die of starvation if you don't. And that's, you know, that's what babies do. It's a, it's a fairly good substance when it's of the right species. Um, but for, for every other potential reason, right, calcium for bones, actually, you know, I think I showed you that chart. Um, I can post it in the show notes of studies of countries that maps their calcium intake to their to women's rates, women over 50s rates of osteoporosis. And it's a, it's a straight line, pretty much. The more calcium you take in, the higher the rates of osteoporosis. And the reason is it's not it's not necessarily that calcium is the worst thing in the world, but calcium is a marker for dairy consumption. And when we're taking in huge amounts of dairy, we're taking in um a high acid load and the body has to buffer that acid load in the blood, right? Our bloodstream pH has to, uh, to be healthy. We have to keep it within really, really tight levels. So all of a sudden you're drinking all this milk, you're getting a high acid spike in your blood. The body goes danger, alert, alert, get, get buffers from anywhere, get calcium, get magnesium, get potassium. Where's the nearest source? Oh, how about the bones? Good. They're not using it right now. Whoop. And so, Actually, high levels of dairy intake are correlated with the highest levels of osteoporotic fractures in the world. Then when you add to that, like the function of dairy, which is to help a very young being proliferate and grow huge new cells, new organs, you know, to, to, to basically grow from, from infant to fully functioning adult in a very short space of time. And, and the species of choice for our milk, of course, is cows. So we're, we're, we're using a substance that's designed to grow baby calves to giant cows. And, and you wonder why we have an obesity problem. And you wonder why we have rampant growths of cancer. All right. This is, this is food that's designed to be utilized by high growth things. So and we all have cancers in our body. Right. We're all carcinogenic. We're all subject to mutations, to solar radiation, to environmental toxins, both natural and, and artificial. And it's the job of our bodies, with the help of the antioxidants and, and phytonutrients in plants, to fight that stuff off. Right. Plants are really good at fighting cancer. 
because they're you know fighting mutations caused by solar energy because they can't like put on sunscreen and a hat. They just have to sit out there in the field and take it. So they have developed all these protective mechanisms to prevent solar radiation from causing mutations. And when we eat those plants, we're eating all those protective mechanisms and we're, we're fighting the cancers that are inside us. But when we're feeding it dairy, we're, we're simply opening the floodgates to say, okay, you guys, you dairy molecules, you go to where you're needed most, to the things that are fastest growing, that want to grow almost without limits. I would add to that that as unethical it is, as it is for me to eat meat, it's harder for me to drink milk because what is involved there is taking this basically a newborn calf away from this lacta lactating animal and the pain that comes from these animals. I mean, that is, that is harder for me to handle even than seeing that line that's getting ready to be slaughtered. I think I was in my 30s before I realized that like cows that give milk are females that have babies. Like, I just figured, you know, cows give milk the way toasters give Pop-Tarts. You know, I just thought that was like the natural order of things. It, it really, I'm embarrassed to say how old I was before it, it kind of got through to me that in order for any animal to give milk, it has to be, um, you know, impregnated. impregnated. And if, their will. If, I'm, if I'm getting that milk, then I'm stepping in front of the line in front of the calf. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots, there's, there's problems with all levels. Cow impregnation these days is artificial insemination, uh, which if cows could talk, I don't suppose they would be thrilled about. Uh, I think they, they, they might call it rape. Um, so there's a lot of... So what we were talking about again earlier, we are what we eat. I mean, think about that milk that we're drinking. Think about that suffering and that grief for that calf that we're consuming. Yeah, cows have big eyes, you know, they look at you. Like we, we, we've just moved down to a, to a rural road in, in North Carolina. And when I go running in the morning, I see cows every day. They are the most soulful things. They just look at me. I don't think they like me yet. They don't, they don't know that I've written this book. But I think they just look at me like another human, like, you know, a mix of fear and pity. So having discussed that we don't want to drink cow's milk, then the best, the next question that comes up is what is the ideal milk? And so we're looking always at nut milks and we've been playing with almonds and cashews, soy milk. Um, and is there a, an ideal or a preferred nut milk? We're not going to use that P word. Protein. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I saw something in my Facebook wall today say, said, we, we call it almond milk because no one could say nut juice with a straight face. <laughs> and apparently neither can we. Um, so, well, it depends what you're going to use it for. I mean, uh, so, you know, like we think about um, milk as kind of a substitute for, for milk. So, you know, the question is, why do we need to substitute at all? I mean, when I first went vegetarian, when I knew almost nothing, like my diet consisted of Boca burgers because you're right, people eat hamburgers. And so I was eating Boca burgers. Then they came up with like fake um, chicken nuggets made from like uh, fungi. And I was like, OK, well, now I'll eat those right now. So, you know, one, one thing is we don't need to have milks. Um, now that, uh, that being said, we live in a society where people like milk in their cereal and we like to make smoothies. So, so the main, the main issue is soy, right? Because that was the first non-dairy milk and that got a lot of flack 
by people um, supported by the dairy industry who wanted to paint soy as a villain to say, if you're getting, giving your kids soy milk, then the boys are going to grow breasts and turn gay. I mean, this, this was actual, you know, language that we were starting to see on the Internet. Um, a lot of it uh, promulgated by um, the Weston Price Foundation, um, which is a, a, a seriously anti-science organization that will that will cherry pick anything. So, you know, in, in the book, we talk about, well, if, if soy causes man boobs, then, you know, we're like the only Asians I know with man boobs are sumo wrestlers. And I don't think it's because of the soy milk. Right? Asians have tra traditionally made soy a fairly large part of their diet from, from tofu to tempeh to, um, to soy sauces, to natto, to all sorts of soy products from ed edamame. And they've typically been lean and they typically have had very, very low rates of the kinds of cancers that are associated with high estrogen levels. So it's true that, that, that soy has estrogens. They're called phytoestrogens and they're different from the estrogens in milk. So if you, know, if you, if you want to avoid estrogen, either if we're growing children, growing boys and girls. You don't want girls to go through estrus early. You don't want boys messed up by uh, high hormone levels. Or for women who want to avoid breast cancer, you want to reduce your estrogen levels. Guess where the estrogen is? It's in the milk. The milk. It's in the milk. And, 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 you know, the milk of lactating and, pr and pregnant cows is sky high with estrogen. And you know what? When you turn it into cheese, you can um, concentrate it by a factor of 10 to 100. So if you're, if you're talking about, you know, estrogen and, and you know, there's 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 protein. Let's come back to protein. There's animal protein and there's plant protein. And to a reductionist scientist, protein is protein. It doesn't matter where you're getting it or, or, or what it's from. But but in the body, the body reacts very differently to the plant based proteins and the animal based proteins, plant based proteins in excess of 15 to 20 percent, which is hard to do, but you can. If you know, if you're like taking concentrated pea protein or your entire diet is like broccoli or spinach and you're not eating anything else, you can get sort of a lot of protein, but our body manages to flush it out very easily. Animal protein, however, turns out to be toxic to the pancreas, which can limit um, uh, insulin production. It's toxic to um, to the uh, receptors in our cells that are like the keyholes for insulin. So our cells can become uh, toxic and insulin resistant, which can lead to diabetes. Uh, but animal proteins don't, plant proteins don't seem to do this. So phytoestrogens are, are technically estrogens, but they act very, very differently in the body. And there's absolutely no long-term evidence. There's no outcome evidence linking soy to any sort of problems. In fact, it's just the opposite. The societies where they have a lot of soy tend to be extremely healthy, tend to be extremely lean, and tend to be very low in the very types of cancers and other conditions that the soy haters claim soy will cause. Tell me about your involvement with Proteinaholic and what was your part that you played? Yeah, so I uh, I met Dr. Garth at a at a conference, an Engine Two conference um, in Austin. Was it last last fall? I think, and I was I was very impressed. He he's a gutsy guy. I mean, he's he's got a great backstory. He's like this you know wonder child. In his thirties, he was a successful surgeon. 
um, featured on the Houston Chronicle uh, health section homepage as you know a hero of healthcare. He had he was the star of his own reality TV show on TLC called Big Medicine. He's like like you know talk about um, you know prodigy and living the American dream, and at the same time he was living in scrubs because he was so embarrassed about his weight. Here he is, this top bariatric surgeon who's gaining weight. He's got such bad irritable bowel syndrome that he has to sit near the restroom wherever, whenever he goes out. He's moody. He's depressed. He's got cholesterol in his eyeballs. He fails a life insurance test for the highest rated life insurance on the eve of the birth of his first child. And he has no answers. He's, he's been trained at some of the best medical schools by the best people. He's, he's uh, at the top of his field. And he's like, I got nothing. So that's what led him to, to start researching, to change his own lifestyle, to, to go dig deep. And by the time we met, he had this title, Proteinaholic, which, which is a really, really interesting title. Um, because it's not about uh, addiction to protein, but it's about this addiction to the idea of protein that we talked about at the very beginning, that we, we just need more and more, and that if we just label something with protein in it, then we're going we're gonna to buy it, and we're terrified of eating anything that's not considered high protein. But he had this manuscript, and he wanted help in, in kind of framing it, in kind of organizing it, and in doing some of the the writing and and narration. So it's it's pretty much the same role that I played with uh, T. Colin Campbell with the low carb fro uh, fraud and whole. Um, just sort of you know I, I like research and I like studying things, but I also like when other people do that for me and I just get to I guess to look at their research and go oh my gosh, like that's really what did it. Like you know Garth sent me the manuscript and I was reading it over and and part of me is going. Oh my gosh, the word the world needs to know about this. And so that's that's when I know it's time for me to get involved. When I'm so excited, when I come running out of my office and I'm like, you know, I grab you and I say, Oh my God, look at this. Did you know this? Look at this study. And and so, you know, so my my gift is for sort of popularizing. And my responsibility is to popularize things that deserve to be popularized. So, you know, we we work together for five, six months, just back and forth. And then I went down there for for five days and we just kind of rolled up our sleeves and, and knocked out the hardest chapters, which was putting together all this research on um, animal protein and cancer, animal protein and longevity, animal protein and obesity, animal protein and diabetes, animal protein and heart disease, and animal protein and hypertension. Like there was just he had done an incredible amount of research and and we had to turn that into a narrative and and that was that was kind of the hardest part and i hope we work i hope it worked i hope when people read it they're like well this is more interesting than going to pubmed and scrolling down the studies and i and i understand them better and i understand why these studies are more important than those studies uh, so i hope we put it in a narrative that ordinary people can appreciate and act on. Now you had to do some of this research yourself because you you got stuff from the Duke University Library. Right. Yeah. So I was I was also looking for other things, and I was looking. Uh, I spent a fair amount of time looking at some of the studies in depth, because um, you know when you go through seven hundred studies, you 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 know Garth read them all, and he read them all carefully. 
but there's there's also things like are there conflicts of interest? So kind of extracurricular research. So I'd look at the authors and I'd see, well, what else have they authored? Who funded them? Uh, I would look at some of the statistical analyses. And there was one study that we, we, we looked at where I kept looking at it and saying, this must be wrong. I'm reading it wrong. I must be reading it wrong. It was a comparison of two groups of elderly um, being given some sort of weight training and one group was given supplemental protein and the other group was not. And so it was a test to see whether giving them extra protein improved their muscle mass, the, I think it was their th circumference of their thigh and their ability to do a single um, um, you know, leg extension with weights. So like you're pressing down you know, with, the, with your leg, knees bent and you, tr and you straighten them and you see how much weight you can move with that movement. And, the, and this, this group of researchers reported like a 35% improvement over a certain amount of time with the, with the protein group. And that was their conclusions, that adding protein helped these people improve their muscle, the circumference of their thigh, and this leg extension by 30%. So that's interesting stuff. And uh, to Garth's credit, there was no, no study that he eliminated because it didn't have the results he wanted. So he's like, well, let's, let's find out about this. Let's look at this. I'm a scientist. I'm a doctor. I have an ethical obligation to tell my people the truth. So let's look at this. And we're looking at it and I'm saying, but wait, look at the control group. They actually improved more than the group that got protein. And he's looking at it and he says, that, that can't be. And we're both looking at it and we, we're shaking our heads and we're going, yeah, that's what it, that's what it says. These, these researchers cherry-picked half a bit of data from their, their uh, results, and they ignored the fact that adding protein actually, it was, it was statistically insignificant, but it was, it was worse than doing nothing. So essentially, the, you know, the conclusion could have been adding protein improves nothing, but instead it was adding protein improved um, you know, function by 30%. You know what also improves function, uh, muscle mass and, and uh, ability to lift weights? Exercise? Yeah, they were having these people exercise. And it turns out that adding protein did absolutely nothing. The only um, significant variable was time. The people, as they exercised, they got stronger and their muscles got bigger over time. But isn't there some sort of an overview that looks at these studies and says, okay, wait a minute, let's, let's look at what you found here. Is it just, I, I choose to interpret it this way and leave it at that? There should be oversight. Unfortunately, there is a, a proliferation of journals that you can get into without having serious peer review. There's a lot of online journals where all you have to do is swipe your credit card and your stuff appears. Um, you know, the, some of you may have heard me talk before about this chocolate study that this, this Harvard scientist basically created a totally bogus study and man, uh, saying that chocolate helps you lose weight. He managed to get it published in what looked like a serious journal. And he was doing it with just $500 in a credit card. Imagine if you're a large industry or a big corporation, the amount of scientists you can buy. So, so there's, there's, um, and there's, there's a well-known bias by uh, medical and, and research journals in favor of interesting research, in favor of new research. So how many times do you want to hear that broccoli is good for you? Right? Imagine a headline, you know, tomorrow's Time magazine has a big headline, broccoli is good for you. Right? Those things aren't going to fly off the shelves. But if you say butter is back. The or, broccoli board might be happy. 
Yeah, all three of them, right? <laughs> the, the same three people who were upset when um, when George Bush Sr. told them told the world he didn't want to eat his broccoli anymore, right? That was a a very minor stink. Uh, but there's you know, and also there's so many studies. So we live in a publish or perish culture. There are way more studies than need to be done. Most of them are insignificant. And there's simply no way to police them all. This is the same reason that something like 97% of eggs in America have salmonella in them, because the USDA doesn't have the manpower the, or woman power to, uh, to do oversight. So, you know, we have, we have bad studies. And we, we wrote about this a lot in Whole, right, about the influence of money on science, where science should be asking useful, asking questions which will have useful utilitarian answers for society. If we, if we know the answer to this question, we can make a better world. And instead, we have questions about if we answer this question, somebody who's paying for the study can make more money. Mm. And that means we have to answer it a certain way. So, you know, I was just listening today to um, a discussion of Paxil. Paxil is an antidepressant. And it was uh, approved by the FDA about 15 years ago. And um, GlaxoSmithKline, then I think SmithKline Beecham, uh, falsified data, lied, hid data that showed that it led to significant increases in suicidal ideation, suicidal behavior, and homicidal behavior among children and teens. And they hid it. And only recently did researchers manage to get their hands on the original data, look at it again, because Paxil has been a complete disaster in the market in terms of healthcare. It's been a huge boon for, for uh, Glaxo, but it's been a huge disaster for people taking it. And the, if you looked at the, stu you know, the studies, were actually you know, eight-week-long studies, so um, you're not going to see side effects in, in eight weeks. But even, even there, they had you know, different people in the study who were clearly suicidal or clearly homicidal, and the, the data was, was falsified to, to, to attribute it to other causes or to, call, or to call it other things, emotional liability instead of suicidal tendencies. So we should be very suspicious of research. And we should be looking at lots of different kinds of research. And we should be looking at who are the researchers who are, uh, who are not likely to be swayed by, uh, by funders, who are willing to admit they're wrong, who haven't built their careers on a position that they're unable to, um, to reassess. And I have to say that science is broken. You know, we love science. You know, you and I saw a fantastic science movie the other day, right? The Martian it was all about you know, using the scientific method and thinking. And um, it was a very noble exercise. But that's not how science is done, at least in the biochemical sciences anymore. It's about career protection. It's about the, uh, the, the, um, the malevolent influence of industry money on tainting data, on uh, asking specific questions that can only lead to marketable products. Uh, so that's why Proteinaholic is such an important book, because it goes through all this stuff and we evaluate it. It's like, you know, if you take uh, 
wheat, like the whole stalk of wheat, and you just try to eat it, most of it will be pretty unpalatable. But if you put it through the right machine, you're going to end up with, um, with grains that you can cook. And if you put it through another machine, you're going to end up with flour that you can bake with. But if you just try to bake a cake with the wheat that you cut off of the field, you're going to end up with a pretty unpalatable product. So that's one of the, the most valuable things that, that Garth did is going through this 700, you know, he went through thousands of studies, chose 700, and then talked about them in a way that makes us understand which are the good ones and which are the bad ones, which, which have sense and meaning and are actionable and which are just somebody padding their resume or um, satisfying a funder. For somebody who do not have access to all these studies and cannot go to the Duke University Library and check all this stuff out, most of the stuff um, your average American gets is, you know, on Facebook saying bacon is good for you. So do you have any hints when I get that bacon is good for you message that I can analyze and say, actually, wait a minute, maybe this is not good for me. And maybe the bacon board or the whatever paid for this. Yeah. So if you see anything that just seems too good to be true, it probably is. John McDougall says that we love to hear good news about our bad habits. Um, I would say find, you know, you, you have some choices. It's not that hard to become an informed consumer of medical information. It does. It takes some effort. It doesn't come for free. Um, you know, I teach how to do that. The Wellness Forum out of Columbus, Ohio, has lots of courses in informed medical decision making. Um, that's my practice area right now, helping people go and uh, and sort through all that literature. So, if someone's listening and you know of someone or you yourself are kind of stuck in a a health crisis and you'd like to achieve wellness. Uh, you know, that's my day job now. Now that now the proteinaholic is done, I got to keep myself busy with something. So I'm, uh, I'm helping people as a consultant and as a guide, so that you make the good best choices now, and that you learn how to make the best choices in the future. So you don't get taken in. So there's definitely some, some aspects of this that that pretty much anyone can learn with some effort. It's like, you know, managing your money, you don't have to become the world's best fund manager. You don't have to become Warren Buffett. But if you read a couple of books and you understand how markets work and you understand mutual funds and you understand compound interest and you understand, you know, credit card uh, fees and, and interest charges, you can you can go a long way towards protecting yourself. And I think we need a kind of nutritional and, and scientific literacy um, so that people can protect themselves in the same way. Um, but the other thing to do is just find someone you trust and follow them. You know, Garth posts two or three times a day on Facebook. Um, you know, I have the Plant Yourself podcast. I have Triangle Be Well. I'm actually starting a community at proteinaholic.com for people who've read the book and would like to stay in community. Um, I'll be teaching a bunch of courses there on things like transitioning to a plant-powered diet, um, how to how to help other people do that. So, you know, taking the data, taking the science and making it meaningful for people's lives. But, you know, find people you trust and listen to them and practice practice on your own. So, um, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there, but I think it's it's our responsibility because no one's going to do it for us. It'd be nice if, if the government would pass laws and say no, no bullshit, but they're not going to. 
And so it's up to us. It's our responsibility. If we want to be well, if we want our children to be well, if we want our friends to be well, to, you know, put some skin in the game, do some learning, do some research and and discover how to advocate for our own health. Because you know what, if, if you look at where the average, the mainstream of America is right now, it's by the age of 50 on multiple pills, obese, with heart disease, precancerous lesions, pre-diabetic. That's what we get when we don't question. And the people who are listening to this, I want them to question. So if I was to contact you and say to you that I have a health issue, um, and what would that session look like? Um, well, we first have a brief discussion to make sure that we're a good fit. You know, 5, 10, 15 minutes, just, you know, basic uh, overview of, of the problem. And at that point, if you'd want to if you want to work with me, I would tell you what I think we can uh, accomplish. Um, and then I would give you a fairly detailed form to fill out. And and that's on purpose. It, it may take you an hour, it may take you an hour and a half to do that. And it, it would involve, let's say, five days of, of food journaling it's very comprehensive. What medications are you taking? What you know, supplements might you be taking? What surgeries have you had? What diagnoses do you have? Um, all that stuff. And, and one of the reasons is that you know doctors are very well trained in prescribing medications, but they typically have five to ten minutes with a patient. They can just look at the chart, and they have to, you know, because of HMO rules, they can't spend time with you. And everybody who's been to a doctor knows what I'm talking about. And they can't, get a, they can't get a whole picture. And so they're really, you know, shooting in the dark with some prescription because they, their perception is that people just want a drug and to get out of there. That, if, you know, doctors who are reluctant to prescribe lots of drugs tend to get lower health grades. And so in, and insurance companies get on them because they aren't um, prescribing up to the standards of care. So there's a lot of, there's, and, and doctors get, get kickbacks and they get paid and they get rewarded for being, um, you know, key opinion leaders and for being big prescribers of drugs. So there's, there's a lot of systematic disincentives for doctors to take the time to really get to know you. And so that's one thing that, that, that I do very differently is we're going we're gonna, to we're, we're gonna work together. We're going to look at the whole picture. I'm not just going to say, OK, well, you seem to be pre-diabetic, so I'm going to give you metformin when I haven't asked you about your mood. And it turns out you're, you're depressed and you're on three antidepressants, which all of which cause weight gain. So we have to look at the whole picture. Maybe you want to lose weight, but you can't exercise because you have a bulging disc and you're about to go for a surgery that has zero um, proven effectiveness and in fact causes lots of problems post-surgery that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So we look at the total picture. We, I go and do research on the latest evidence, scientific evidence-based studies saying, well, here's how the people who do this do. Here's how people who do that do. Let's, let's look. And I make recommendations based on um, they're not even recommendations. They're simply laying out pros and cons benefits and risks of every available treatment option. Um, and one of the big ones, you know, here's my bias. I believe that things that are caused by lifestyle should be treated by lifestyle as a first resort. If we need to go to surgery and meds, we should do that after we've addressed the root causes. And it turns out that it's gone too far or there's some genetic anomaly. And we, we absolutely have to move to um, medical technologies to resolve it. But, you know, 
50 million Americans are on statins for high cholesterol, not because their bodies have a statin deficiency. <laughs> All right, so let's not go there first thing. Let's, let's take back uh, our lifestyles. And the nice thing about lifestyle treatment is it's the opposite of a drug, where drugs, we want to get a single thing that just does one thing, right? We want the magic bullet that just takes care of high blood pressure or depression or syphilis or angina or whatever it is. With lifestyle, it's a scattershot approach and a good lifestyle, a lifestyle that's healthy for heart disease is also healthy for diabetes, is also healthy for stroke, is also healthy for cancer, is also healthy for uh, glaucoma and uh, macular degeneration and sexual function and back pain. That the lifestyle that is good for us is good across the board. Well, what about side effects? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you might find yourself being energized and happy. And uh, there's also environmental side effects in terms of uh, reversing uh, global deforestation, global warming, uh, aquifer depletion, and um, social side effects of um, helping to ameliorate some of the gap between rich and poor, haves and have-nots, powerful and powerless around the world. So, yeah, there's side effects. Now, I know you work with the Wellness Forum. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, the Wellness Forum out of Columbus, Ohio, is, to my mind, the, the, the most vocal, interesting, and um, evidence-based voice for healthcare, sanity, and education in the country. So I'm affiliated with them. Uh, I go to their conferences. When I work with people, one of the things I will do is... Um, enroll them as members in the Wellness Forum so they can get the um, Wellness 101 program, which is a, a great program on uh, how to eat, um, how to transition your diet. Um, so, but you know what? We're, we're all looking at what's the evidence. So it's not like you're going to join a cult. This, you know, you can, you can join the cult of low carb or the cult of low fat or the cult of, cult of high protein or low protein or um, you know, any number of, of dietary dogmas. What we're doing is simply as every piece of research comes out, we're looking at it, we're evaluating it, we're adding it to the mix. And, and we're saying, here's what we know so far. Here are the best odds diets, best odds lifestyles, best odds medical treatments. Um, and we're simply presenting the evidence because we're not being paid by anybody. Wellness Forum doesn't take money for, 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 for advertising foods. It doesn't take money for prescribing drugs. It's all fee-for-services. So if you come to me, you're the only person who's paying me. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. I really appreciate you asking those last questions because I'm so shy about marketing myself. <laughs> and I know you know that. And so that's, that was that last little bit here was uh, reminding, reminding me to remind you that I, uh, I do have a business and that's the business that um, supports this podcast. So um, this, this labor of love has to, I'm, I'm, I'm not a trust fund baby. So I've had to work for a living and, um, you know, helping people be healthy. It, I can't think of a, a, a better, a more honorable way for me to, uh, to make a living. So Mia, thank you so much for, uh, for helping with this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And as always, the Plant Yourself podcast um, needs your help. The best way to do it is to spread the word, to uh, share this episode with friends and family. 
Um, today, you can go out and get a copy of Proteinaholic, which is spelled protein and A-holic, A-H-O-L-I-C, by Dr. Garth Davis with me. And it's subtitled, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. Today or tomorrow would be awesome days to buy the book because we're looking for that bump that can get us onto bestseller lists, which can then reach a much wider audience. Another way to support the podcast is to leave us a review and some stars on iTunes. Um, a bunch of people have been donating lately. It's, it's really, really wonderful for me to look in my inbox and see a PayPal from someone for $10 a month or $20 a month. It really helps defray the costs of hosting, um, a lot of my time, a lot of the equipment. I am upgrading equipment always to try to give you a better experience and just because I like cool stuff like that. You can also leave a review of Proteinaholic on Amazon. Um, I'm sure there will be uh, a fair amount of... Uh, high-protein activists who will want to leave reviews saying that we don't know what we're talking about, so it's always good to buffer them with some uh, favorable reviews if you do like the book. We've just come out of a, a week of rain and overcast skies, and so for the first time the sun's out today, we were able to go out into the garden, and Mia picked up a nice big load of eggplants and okra, uh, which we are roasting for dinner tonight. So I hope that the fruits of your labors are nourishing you and supporting you and filling you with energy and love. And as always, be well, my friends.